Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 28. Continuing our study through the Apostles' Creed as a, a foundation of the essentials of our faith as believers in Christ. We come now to his glorious resurrection, which is really, it's the crux of the matter. It's, it's the turning point of all of history. And so as we continue in reflecting on his, his atoning sacrifice and descent last week, we consider now his glorious resurrection from the dead. Hear now the word of the Lord, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone back and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Christ who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. So we come now to the high point, the, the climax in a sense of the Apostles' Creed. Not yet to the resolution or, or to the great story of our faith, of God's unfolding plan for redemption, but to the focal point around which everything else turns, to, to the great turning point in all of human history, the resurrection of our Lord. We've been studying through this Apostles' Creed, this ancient summary of Christian faith. Normally, it's our practice to study through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But it's useful at times to survey broad ideas and to focus on particular elements of our faith which are most important. So today, we continue to study, uh, drawing from the text a, a core doctrine and belief, and then seeking to apply it to our lives. We've studied our belief in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended to hell. And now, on the third day, He is risen from the dead. Praise God. Would you join with me once more in a quick word of prayer? Lord, we ask that we as we begin to, to study your word more deeply and more focusedly, that you would give us insight and clarity, that you would help me as the speaker to speak clearly and boldly what is good and what is true, not to seek to build myself up or tickle the ears of my hearers, but to speak what is faithful to your word. Help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive and believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So we have now continuing from Mario's sermon last week of Christ's crucifixion, of his being betrayed by his disciple Judas, handed over to the Romans, betrayed and condemned by the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, of being delivered over to Pontius Pilate, being whipped and mocked and crucified, and then finally at his death to be buried in a borrowed tomb. And we see now the story continues that it's interesting as well the way that Matthew has his own particular focus. We know that God has inspired for us four gospel accounts, each of which have their own peculiarities, their own focuses and emphases. And so we see things in Matthew's account of the crucifixion and resurrection that aren't in some of the other gospels, and he doesn't have some things that they do. It's almost like we have four different camera angles showing different details of these scenes. And we know that Matthew was Levi, the tax collector, who himself was a follower and disciple of Christ. And so he recounts this story of the women, the, the two Marys who went to go and see the tomb where the Lord was buried. He tells of them going up at dawn after the Sabbath towards dawn on the first day of the week where Mary Magdalene and one of the other Marys, there are several in the gospel, kind of like John, it's sometimes a little hard to sort them out. But these two Marys, they go to go and prepare Jesus for a more official burial. They go most certainly with a great amount of sorrow and disappointment. That These two women likely were two of the ones who helped take Jesus' body down and, and carry it to the borrowed tomb in the garden and lay him to rest. But he was betrayed on, on Thursday night and, and condemned and crucified on Friday he was buried on Friday afternoon, and they weren't able to prepare his body over the Sabbath. And so they had to make a, a quick turnaround, wrap him quickly, place him in the tomb, and then they had to wait through the Old Covenant Sabbath and return on early in the first day of the week to give him a full and proper burial. So they come now likely carrying uh, great amounts of ointment and salves and, and different herbs and spices to come and, and wrap Jesus' body to greater preserve it, they certainly don't expect a resurrection here. They're coming with sorrow, expecting to find the body of the one that they had followed and loved and put all their hopes in. And yet instead, they find an empty tomb. So they come on the first day of the week, the, the third day after his burial, Friday, Saturday, now Sunday, the first day. And as they're coming, we hear that an earthquake happens. An earthquake often, and especially throughout the Old Testament, comes as a sign of divine judgment. That the earth quakes when the Lord of the heavens and earth comes in judgment. Whether that's coming in judgment to discipline his own people or to scatter his enemies. To vindicate his own or to wage judgment on those who oppose him. And we see here, this angel comes to do both. He comes to be the the fitting servant of his king in his resurrection, and also to scatter his enemies. So we hear that there is this great earthquake. The ground underneath them shakes. An angel of the Lord descends from heaven, comes and the stone that they had sealed against Jesus' tomb, he pushes it right out of the way. And that the guards, the, the Roman centurions that were posted here to, to guard Jesus' tomb from his disciples, that they are so terrified at the appearance of this angel and his might and the earthquake, that they fall down as dead men. They're not 
fully dead, truly dead. They, they're passed out, they're unconscious, or the angel has, has, has struck them with so much fear they can't even move. We know whatever the case it was, we, we see his, his appearance described that this angel comes with the appearance of lightning and with clothing as white as snow. And sometimes we have kind of, uh, kind of romanticized visions of angels. Uh, the West has for a long time begun to depict angels as chubby babies or, or skinny, tall, blonde women, neither of which are particularly biblical pictures. Uh, we see angels in a variety of forms, but most often they come with the appearance of strong fighting men, men of valor and of power as angels in the army of the heavenly hosts. We see them as the servants of the Lord and his soldiers ready to charge at his command. And so we see one of the Lord's soldiers come down, and just the appearance of him is so frightening and terrifying that however many of the Romans are, his appearance alone is enough to cast them down as though dead. We see that the glory of the Lord's servant reflects the even greater glory of his master. That of this glorious angel coming down with an earthquake and with lightning and, and the appearance of, of being flashing white as snow and rolling the stone away in great power, if this is the one that's come to roll the stone away, how much more glorious is the one who is to emerge from the grave? It's, it's almost as if it's, if it's the soldier and, and all of his decorated guard coming to open the door for the king as he makes his grand entrance. The angel comes down and rolls the stone away, and the, the soldiers fall down as though dead. And the women see this, and they are terrified. Whether they're, they're coming up as this is all happening, or they come up and they see this, this lightning-clothed angel and all these passed-out soldiers, they shake with fear. But the angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. But he tells them the message that they were least expecting, even though it was the message that they had already been told. He says to them, He is not here, for he has risen as he has said. That the angel gives them the declaration that not only has the Lord come, not only has the Lord finished the job of our redemption, but he has been raised just as he promised as he would, further confirming his divine identity, of his reality as the suffering servant of Isaiah who would come and atone for the sins of his people and yet would be vindicated and see the work of his hands accomplished. That, as the psalmist said, that the Lord would not let his Holy One to see corruption. That this Jesus, who, who just three days before they had thought had been the biggest failure that they could have hoped in, they thought that all of their hopes had been dashed, yet still they loved him. They cared enough to come and prepare a, a real burial for his body. But yet, even with how much they loved him, they didn't realize the truth of what he himself had told them. He has risen just as he said. The angel tells them and reminds them of all the ways that Jesus had repeatedly prophesied his own impending death and resurrection through the gospel. You can go through and see numerous times in the Gospels how Jesus predicts his own death in various ways. Sometimes it's more circumspect and in symbolic ways that they don't see at first, like 
when he says that this adulterous generation seeks a sign, but they won't get any sign except the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the earth for three days and on the third was, was brought back to life. And they go, what on earth could this mean? Or in John's gospel, John 2, when he goes and cleanses the, the money changers out of the temple, and they say to him, what sign do you do to show us all these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? And John adds, years later, that he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And sometimes it's just plain on the nose. We see, especially, I think, two or three times in Luke, where he says, it's time for the Son of Man to go and to be lifted up, to go to Jerusalem, to be betrayed, handed over, crucified, and the third day, rise again from the dead. And they say to themselves, what in the world could that mean? That we often, even with the clearest declaration of God's plan and promises and his faithfulness, are still slow of heart to believe. And yet they receive this glorious news. And even the great proof of it, he doesn't just say, he's not here, go away, but rather, come and see where he was. Come and see where you place the body. Come and see an empty tomb. And so, knowing that the tomb was empty, they, they have this mission now. The angel tells them, go and tell the disciples that he's risen. Go and tell them that he'll go on ahead of them and meet them in Galilee. That they'll go and, and they'll meet him there. This is the message God has given me to tell you. And so they depart quickly from the tomb. It says they depart quickly with fear and great joy. That they, they're struck by this. They're likely in, in shock and still unsure exactly what to believe. Emotionally stricken in ways that I, I can't imagine. And so they go with this mixture of fear and joy. Now, could this really be true? Could our Lord truly have fulfilled all of these promises that we didn't understand? And in the grace of God, even to confirm their faith, more even than an angelic messenger shining like lightning to tell them of his resurrection, they see Jesus himself. That he appears to them and he says, Greetings. And when they see Jesus, their risen Lord, they come and they grasp onto his feet and they worship him. Further confirming to us the divine identity of Jesus Christ. That in his glorious atoning death, in his resurrection, the satisfaction of all of our sins and the accomplishment of his divine mission, they fall down at his feet and they worship him. And we must remember in the scope of the whole of scriptures that there is only one who is worthy of worship that you shall have no other gods before him. You shall not worship any idols or any created thing, that the God of heaven and earth alone shall you worship and serve. And yet, they grasp the feet of Jesus and they worship him. Further confirming that he is not only the divine Messiah promised to come and deliver them, but he is God in the flesh. And that even if they didn't recognize the fullness of what they were declaring in this, is a reminder to us that 
God Himself has come to bear our sin. That God Himself has accomplished our salvation. And if this is what He has done, then there is no room for doubt. He has done exactly what He promised He would. Jesus tells them as well, don't be afraid. He says, go and tell my disciples what you have seen, that I have risen. Go and tell them that I will go ahead of them to Galilee, that I will meet them there, and they will see me. This is the, the mission that Jesus presents. And again, it's interesting considering this in light of the other gospel accounts. Uh, where, does, where does Peter and John fit into this timeline and, and other things like this? And We see in Luke and in John the way that Jesus over the next couple of days, appears to his disciples where he shows them and walks through the Scripture with them and, and helps them to see that all of this was the fulfillment of Scriptures all along and that he appears to them on this first day of the week and then the next week later appears to them again that he, he eats with them and drinks with them. They touch his hands and his feet, that they see this is no imagination. They see this is no... Uh, good thought or well wish. This is no ghost or a figure. This is God in the flesh, risen again. The one who says in Revelation, I was dead, but now I live. And so, just for the sake of context, we'll read these other verses as well to finish the story. 11 through 15, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled the elders and took counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him. Well, you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. But now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we know from the other accounts and from the book of Acts that this now is when our Lord is lifted up and carried into the heavens to sit at the right hand of his Father. But we'll get to that next week. We see the fulfillment of Jesus' promises, that he would come and make a full satisfaction and atonement for the sins of his people, that while all else had failed, he would succeed in the divine plan for redemption that all of the types and shadows and promises and prophecies of the Old Covenant had come to fulfillment in Him. And so we see, when we confess that Jesus rose again on the third day, there is more depth and of riches that we could possibly mine in a lifetime. In one sense, this has been my easiest sermon to write of any of these preaching here, because there is way too much to say. It took me very little time to come up with 10 points of examination and 10 points of application. And I had to work it down a little bit. And I promise this won't be an hour and 10 minutes. But there is so much depth for us to draw from this passage. 
there is so much for us to consider of the glorious resurrection of our King. And so just to overview a couple of these things that we believe when we confess that he is risen again on the third day. First, we confess that Jesus Christ historically, bodily, and literally rose from the dead. It's not a metaphor or a word picture. It's not a, a religious saying or a parable. It is a genuine historical reality. And if it is not a genuine historical reality, then everything we do here is an absolute waste of time. That Jesus Christ, the body that was slain, the soul that departed, on the third day were reunited, that the brain began to function, that the heart began to beat, that the lungs began to breathe, and the Son of God came and left his tomb, that he stood and he spoke, that he rose, that he ate, that he drank, that they could touch him and feel him. He was not, as many skeptics have supposed through the ages, a mere figment of their imagination, that they just missed him so much that they collectively had this vision of, what if Jesus was, all, was right here with us? Those kind of group hallucinations just don't happen. Nor is that anywhere coherent in light of everything that we see throughout the scriptures or in light of any of the historical accounts surrounding the resurrection. Even more so, if Jesus is not bodily risen from the dead, then we have no hope for our own future life. We have no promise and no assurance that the debt has been paid. We have no reason to believe that God has fulfilled his and that is why Jesus' bodily resurrection is foundational to Christian orthodoxy, to right belief. That's not to say that everyone who thinks Jesus may have come from the dead is automatically saved, but that is to say that someone who doubts that Jesus risen, has risen from the dead can truly be a believer in Christ. Because a Jesus that doesn't keep his promises is not the Jesus of the Bible. This is also essential to our hope. The reason that we confess this as part of the essentials of Christianity is because without this, everything else is futile. Consider these words we've read before from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes to the churches, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, the gospel which you received, in which you now stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached with you unless you believed in vain. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That God has fulfilled his promises in Jesus Christ, God with us. He continues, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, that our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 17 through 19, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our faith does not center around a real resurrection, then our faith has no grounding and no purpose at all. We have the confidence that this is the fulfillment 
of all of what God had promised to do through the Old Testament, of all that he has fulfilled in the New Testament, of all that he, by his Spirit, has confirmed to us in a supernatural witness. Because we know that, that no one just through evidences alone will come to believe these things. Even if you present them with as much historical evidence as you possibly could, without a supernatural work of the Spirit of God, they would not believe it. Consider the Pharisees who heard the report of the Roman guards that an angel of the Lord descended with an earthquake to roll the stone away and to bring out this Jesus whom they crucified, who said that he would raise again in the third day. And rather than repenting of their murder of the Son of God, they cover it up and spread rumors that though they were confronted with the most serious evidence imaginable, their hardness of heart would not allow them to believe. But we should recognize as well that it is a great confirmation to our faith that no other possibility makes sense of the historical reality. That these supposed disciples who had abandoned Jesus in fear of their own persecution just days before, somehow gathered the strength to come and beat up these trained Roman guards and steal a body that went somewhere to spread a lie that benefited them none and that would cost them all of their lives for no reason at all? And if this was just a, a spiritual resurrection, just a, a good feeling, a good thought that they had, all the religious leaders had to do was produce the body that they already had. That the historians, even the secular historians, Tacitus and Josephus and others who, who speak of these people of Christ, these crazy people who believe in this risen Messiah. There is no other possibility that makes sense of the historical reality. Even considering the Apostle Paul, the, the church's greatest enemy, who seeing the risen Christ becomes their greatest missionary. We see and confess in Jesus' resurrection further confirmation that he himself is the divine son. We see that the doctrine of the Trinity, which is so foundational to our faith, explained even here, that in Galatians 1.1, we see that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the Father, and also that in Romans 8.11, we have the Spirit in us who raised Christ from the dead, that the Father raised the Son through the Spirit. That Father, Son, and Spirit, one God in three persons, accomplishes this work of salvation together as they work all things together according to the counsel of their goodwill. We see how all of the Old Testament prophecies and types and shadows were fulfilled in this moment. That as Abraham brought his only begotten son Isaac to sacrifice him on the mountain, the Lord said that he would provide a substitute. And the Lord sacrificed His only begotten Son on that mountain for our salvation. The Lord provided, and the Lord received His Son back from the dead. That we see in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the way that animals would be brought forward year after year after year in endless bloody sacrifices, because the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. That the the institution that God had put in place was ultimately to teach them a lesson that these bloody sacrifices of fallen and sinful priests could never purify the conscience. That the old covenant, as glorious as it was, 
was not the covenant of grace that would save us from our sins. That all of these types and shadows, that these, these fallen sinful priests who themselves would die and have to be replaced year after year, that all of the animal sacrifices day after day, that, that all of their prayers and petitions, all of them were pointing forward to the ultimate need of a once and for all sacrifice that all of them are pointing towards the need for a perfect high priest who, as Hebrews says, through the power of an indestructible life, is now able to intercede eternally for the saints and to perfect once and for all us who are being sanctified. And even that Jesus' own prophecies were fulfilled. Again, that as Jonah was in the belly of the deep for three days and yet comes back to life, so he would. That as that as the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I'll all build another one in three days. And he does. Building not a building of, of stone and brick, but bringing his own body back to life and building a greater spiritual temple through it. That in Jesus' resurrection, the church comes to life and clarity. That the people of God of all ages are knitted together under one head that all of us are gathered as living stones into a new temple. We see as well that the resurrection of Christ marks the inauguration of his kingdom. That Jesus, being resurrected, can now say that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations, and I will be with you always to the end of this age. The scripture's teaching is that Jesus Christ, risen is now reigning even today. The different, there are different theological camps, especially ones that have risen in relatively recent history, who will go so far even as to say that Jesus is not reigning today. That his rule, his kingdom, is something that's an exclusively future reality. But brothers, this is not the teaching of the scriptures. The scriptures teach that Jesus Christ in his resurrection has established and inaugurated his kingdom. That as he now sits enthroned at the right hand of his father, he sits as a king, ruling and reigning. That in his ministry, as he cast out demons and he healed the sick, he proclaimed that all of this occurs because the kingdom of God is among you. That his fundamental preaching throughout the Gospels was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now this is a kingdom not yet fully consummated. He has given us a promise that one day he shall return to right every wrong, to rescue his people, to wage justice and warfare on his enemies. But we must understand as well that his kingdom has already begun. And even more so that his kingdom now is not segregated by nationalities and ethnicities. It's not segregated by borders and flags. His kingdom now is now made of all Jew and Gentile believers in Christ, united in one body. For there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances 
that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through his cross, thereby killing the hostility. That in, in rising again from the dead and ascending to heaven, he has now opened the floodgates of the kingdom so that all who may come through him may come freely without cost, without pure backgrounds and ethnicities, without any special heritage, that they come not by claiming to be the true descendants of Abraham, but by claiming to be in Jesus Christ. That he has now established his kingdom, that he now rules and reigns on high. And if we examine the scriptures carefully, that even the saints who are now glorified with him now reign with him, as he promised his disciples in the Gospels. Furthermore, that the resurrection realizes the defeat of Satan, hell, and death. That Jesus, in his glorious resurrection, has fully and finally declared his victory over the powers of darkness. That as he says in Mark 3:27, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he has first bound the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. He's speaking there primarily of, of the demon-possessed people that he was curing and setting free, but even further of his ministry, that in his life and death and resurrection, he is binding our enemy. The strong man has been bound in such a way that he has plundered all that once belonged to him. Though we were once under the power of darkness, and under the domain of the prince of the power of the air, children of disobedience like the rest of mankind. Now God has rescued us and ransomed us and brought us into his eternal kingdom so that hell and death no longer have the sting that they once did, that they no longer had the power over us that they once did. John 12, 31 through 32, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection are the mark of the end of Satan's rule and reign. He is no longer able to deceive the nations as he once was. And Colossians 2.15, He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. His resurrection is his vindication. That it is the declaration of God the Father that as Christ raised from the dead, he is declared to be the victor. That he has ransomed all that he has called to himself and that he has won the battle. There's, a, there's an ancient tradition in the church of thinking of Christ as as tearing down the gates of hell itself to ransom all of the saints and bring them home. Now, there are some extremes to that and some places that different theologians took that, which I would not say are biblical. But truly, we can say that Christ, and with his church behind him, continue to advance and storm the kingdom of darkness. That he continues through the preaching of his gospel to build his kingdom that the gates of hell will not withstand the advance of his church. Henrik Bullinger, as a, a, refor uh, a reformed Reformation pastor, wrote that 
the Lord might therefore declare to the world that after this life there is another, that the soul does not die with the body but remains alive. So he has returned the third day to his disciples alive again. And at that instant he showed them all that sin had been purged, that death had been disarmed, that the devil had been vanquished and hell destroyed. Our king has been victorious. Measuring that in light of all of Scripture, of course, but we do see the centrality of Christ's victory in his atoning death and glorious resurrection. Because his vindication as well guarantees our justification. That when Jesus died on the cross and cried out to his Father, it is finished, it was the declaration that all of the debt that we had occurred against a righteous and holy God had been fully paid and satisfied. That it is finished is the declaration of God, it is paid in full. And that his resurrection is the assurance that the job has been finished. That not only has our sin been atoned for, but our resurrection has been accomplished with him. Though it is yet to be applied to us in the future, the resurrection is already a reality. Romans 1.4 Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection of the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. That he is vindicated in his resurrection and further declared to be very God of very God. And that Romans 4, 24 and 25, considering Abraham who was justified by faith, he says it will also be accounted to us who believe in him, him who raised Jesus from the dead, who delivered him up for our trespasses and raised him for our justification. Zacharias Asinus explains that one single sin, unatoned for, would have kept him under the power of death that if Jesus had not fully accomplished the entire work of redemption for all of his elect, and he would not have risen from the dead. How much comfort and assurance do we find, therefore, in seeing the empty tomb? We see as well that the first day, the first day of the week, the day after the Old Covenant Sabbath is marked off as the day of recreation, that this is the day that our new creation in Christ has been accomplished that we see the transition through the New Testament period where the people of Christ began to stop worshiping on the Old Covenant Sabbath and began to start worshiping on the first day of the week, the day that Christ had risen from the dead. Acts 20, verse 7, that the church had gathered together to hear Paul preach on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, that the church gathered together and gave an offering for the needs of the saints on the first day of the week. Hebrews 1.10, that John receives his revelation of the coming of Jesus Christ as he's praying on the first day of the week, which he calls the Lord's Day. Hebrews 4.9, that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and therefore, until our Sabbath rest is fully and finally accomplished in the new creation, there remains a need for a day of rest and worship. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us be diligent to stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the gathering together of believers, literally the synagoguing together of believers, 
but all the more so as we see the day of his return approaching. That as Christ, sorry, as, as God, Father, Son, and Spirit marked the first creation on the seventh day with the day of rest, that his work of creation was accomplished, so Christ has brought in the new creation on the first day of the week. And this is why we worship now on Sunday, that this, as biblically a day of rest and worship, even though the words aren't explicitly in the New Testament, can be considered a Christian Sabbath. That's something that has become controversial in our day, but in its essence and application has been the majority view of all Christians through history. Now, there are many implications and applications of that that we can tease out at another date, but the biblical truth of that this is the new day of God's people to meet and worship, it seems to me to be plain in Scripture. We also see that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. Further in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, If in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection from the dead. As all in Adam die, so also all in Christ shall be made alive that each in their own order, Christ, the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ's resurrection is the firstfruits, the first harvest, the down payment, and assurance of our future resurrection. That as his return, all of us will be brought body and soul into his eternal kingdom. And lastly, the resurrection is the inbreaking already of his new creation that this is the declaration that God's work of renewing and restoring all things has already begun. That already in Christ, for those of us who believe, has experienced the foretaste of a new creation. That if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. There's a great book by G.K. Abiel called Union with the Resurrected Christ. It's about this thick, and I wish I could just read all of it to you for all the, the depth of biblical riches that are there. But let me summarize with this from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 45. It asks, what does the resurrection of Christ profit us? What does it benefit us? And the answer, first, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he has purchased for us by his death. And second, that we also, by his power, are raised to new life. And last, that the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. To, to summarize all of this and some points of application, first and foremost, believe in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Turn to Christ. Behold the empty tomb and see the promise of new life for all who believe in him. There is no message so more central or important as the message that we continue to preach and proclaim every Lord's Day here, that if there is ever a sermon preached from this pulpit that does not contain believe in Jesus Christ, then burn it all down, because that is not worth worship. Second, see how we should worship Christ our risen King. How we now join in with the chorus of the angels and the saints now departed to raise up our praises to Christ the King. There is nothing more worthy of our words. Next, consider how Christ is the perfect and the only Savior. 
consider how throughout all of Scripture, all of these, these men and women, these, these false and fickle messiahs that they turn to, all of, all of the people, all of the things, the power, the strength, the pleasure that they turn to for their deliverance, how far they fall short. And seek Christ in the Scripture and see how all of it comes to fulfillment in Him. How all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Never doubt His promises, brothers and sisters, that He will never